Welcome to another episode of The Deeper Podcast here from Roadmap to Heaven and Covenant Network. I'm Adam Wright, and it has been a joy to have these longer conversations these past few months to bring to you on this once-a-month basis. I'm happy to welcome to our studio today a longtime friend of Covenant Network and a friend of mine, Monsignor Eugene Morris, Rector of the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine in St. Louis, Missouri, a priest now for how many years, Monsignor? It is 27 and a half, wow. Adam. Which God. Very hard to believe it's been that long, but yes, thank you, and it's good to be here. Thanks. This month, we are focusing on our preparation for Christmas, and every year we go through the cycle of readings for Advent. There is much that we could say about just our preparation, but when it comes down to it, I think there's one question that we have each wrestled with, or at least asked at some point in our Christian lives, and that is, why the incarnation? I mean, this whole time of preparation is to remember how in Bethlehem, in a manger, born of the Virgin Mary, the second person, a divine person, took on human nature and came to be among us as, as we say, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what we're going to address today is that, that question of why. And I was going to prepare questions to say, let's begin here and then go to this point and that point. But Monsignor, to be honest with you, I don't even know where we begin outside of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden and our need for a Savior. So, you know, Adam, it's interesting because that actually is the starting point. But in one sense, given the difficulty that modernity has with sin, you actually have to back the conversation up even further and talk about the reality of sin in general. The specifically the sin of Adam and Eve and the damage done and caused by their sin that then set in motion what would be the mystery of the incarnation. Uh, we can kind of give a little bit of a teaser as part of the answer that, yes, uh, the second person of the Blessed Trinity comes and takes on human flesh for the expiation of sins, but also for the revelation of the Father and the fulfillment of the covenant. So one of the questions that would have been debated was, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, would the incarnation still have been necessary? The answer, I believe, is yes. I think that's what the church gives voice to as well, although I think it is a more of a a speculative question. So since we have a little time, we can kind of unpack, and that is to get everyone to understand that sin is real, sin does real damage, and the sin of Adam and Eve, with which all of us are born— and its residual effects after baptism and concupiscence are always going to need intervention from God. So from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God was present there. God was repairing the damage that they did. And the perfect reparation, again, that beautiful word, of the damage done by the sin of Adam and Eve eventually is the coming of our Lord in the flesh. Um, so I don't want to dominate the whole conversation. You already may have some questions, but, uh, so uh, again, I talk to people about the nature of sin. Um, what is sin? Sin is an offense against God. It is consciously choosing yourself over God. Uh, we know there are mortal and venial sins. Mortal sins do irreparable damage to our relationship with God and only by his grace can they be healed. Venial sins do damage to our relationship, but we know from the perennial teaching of the church that venial sins can be forgiven not only through the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, confession, but also through corporal and spiritual works of mercy at the confidior at Holy Mass. Uh, other acts of charity can do repair the damage caused by venial sin. 
The simple fact, however, is venial or mortal, and I, I've had this conversation both in the confession, outside of the confession, the categories of venial and mortal sin really only are, are, are ultimately significant from, in one sense, from the perspective of the confessee, confessor, rather, the priest who's hearing the confessions, to help him adjudicate as to the seriousness of the sin and how he's going to respond to the penitent. For us as penitents, sinners, and I would include my brother priest, myself as well, I both go to confession and I hear confessions. When I go, yes, I know of mortal sin and venial sin, but the fact of the matter is I've sinned against God. And since we don't know how many venial sins equal a mortal sin— or how many venial sins our souls can handle before it's a tipping point? And the answer to that question is we don't want any sin on our soul. We, we have to understand that what God is doing in repairing the sin of Adam and Eve and all the sins that have come after that is recognizing what we introduced into the world, and the only way to fix that was going to be by a perfect sacrifice. There was, not, there was no other sacrifice that was going to be able to make expiation. So the whole Old Testament economy— on one level, certainly God's clear love for his people, and in the best of times, their response to that love appropriately, more often than not, they're failing to respond. But all of the outward sacrifices just remained that, outward sacrifices, that called them to a higher reality, they being God's chosen people, but it didn't actually affect God's chosen people. So one of the things that we, we can talk about, which I would love to talk about as well on this show, would be the implications of the relationship between the incarnation and the sacraments, which is why, again, this is another conversation we can figure out where we want to go, and you're the boss, so you tell me where you want to go. But then when we start talking about getting rid of sacraments or choosing which sacraments we believe, that actually impacts the incarnation. So let's be really clear and throw this out there just get to tease people. If one does not believe in our Lord's real presence in the Blessed Sacrament, body, blood, soul, and divinity— then one has to at least ask the question, what is their understanding of the incarnation? And one might even be able to argue that there is a faulty kind of conceptualization of the incarnation if one does not accept the real presence of our Lord in the most blessed sacrament. I think of those diagrams where you write something in the middle and then you have all these points going out. Some people use bulletin boards or cork boards and they have the string going from the center uh, to all of these points. And it's a question of which string are we going to pull at here? Um, I want to stay in the step backwards sure. for a moment yes. and go back to something you said very early on, that question of whether or not the incarnation would have been necessary had it not been for the fall of man. And and especially in light of that reading that the creation story and, and the expulsion from paradise is not meant to be taken literally, if I'm correct, that you know there was a man named Adam and a woman named Eve specifically, but it's referring to all of our ancestors and the fall of humanity at some point, or what's the way we're supposed to look at that? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question, because when you look at the theology of original sin, there is a specific first parent who rejected God. So, and I'm going to be very careful, because now we're really into some particular theology, and I don't want to give bad, um, I don't want to give bad information or incorrect information. So what we have to guard against, in a sense, kind of a, a general understanding of sin, meaning, you know, we're, we're kind of born into sin. We are, but we're born into sin particularly, individually, unfortunately. So this is not what God's intention was. So let's be very clear about that, which is, again, another reason for the beauty of the incarnation. God's desire, as Paul says to Timothy, is that all men might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
So God's only desire has always been for us to go. I'm looking at the sign right now, roadmap to heaven, which I love looking at right now, uh, because that's what this is. This is this is God giving us the way to get to heaven. So was there actually an Adam and an Eve? Well, in one sense, we know the answer is no, because the first 11 chapters of Genesis are prehistory um, from the creation of the world and so on and so forth. But the church has also understood that what is taught in the Genesis story is that there was at the beginning God's first creation, created particularly as male and female, but in his likeness, and they both individually and collectively rejected God and were disobedient to him, and as a result of their disobedience introduced sin into the world, with which we have then inherited by virtue of being descendants of those first parents. I ask that question because the the second question that comes after it is this. What is our understanding before that fall in light of the story that we read in Genesis? You know, some would say, well, they were in heaven. They were in, you know, in paradise, but they were expelled. And I've, you know, I'm not an Old Testament scholar. Uh, I took a couple classes in college, and mainly I hear the Old Testament readings and then Father's homily when I go to Sunday Mass. That is my study of the Old Testament. But that's a false notion that 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 was heaven. That was what, you know, Adam and Eve were there. They lost it, and now we're trying to get back. We're not trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. We're, We're trying to get to something even greater than that. That is exactly correct. And that leads to that that point we were making earlier about the the necessity of the incarnation, because Adam and Eve knew of themselves as creatures, not as children of God. And the only way we can understand ourselves as children of God is because Christ comes and reveals that, says, you are God's beloved children. Uh, when you pray to God, call him Father. I'm going back to my father and your father. I'm going to prepare a home for you. So there is uh, an expansive intimacy that is beautifully human and relational that only comes about through the mystery of the incarnation. So would the garden have been the place to stay? One could argue certainly that there was a certain kind of um, beautiful image of paradise attached there, but it would have still been incomplete because I would have only been a creature in relationship to a creator as opposed to clearly, again, in the Old Testament, God is always father. Uh, when we talk about, we hear about him in uh, the prophetic tradition, hear about him in the Psalms. Um, so, but we now, in a sense, know that for fact by virtue of the incarnation. So you can see the the the, the desire of ancient Israel to um, to talk about the beauty of this relationship is more than just between a, a creator and his created or his creation, which is kind of pedestrian and limiting. You know, so all the marital image, God, especially again in the early prophetic tradition that that Israel is espoused to God, we see that in in um, in um, in Sirach, uh, and certainly again in the Psalms. All of this, okay, so all of this, there's is already there. This heart is built for that, but none of the things that were present in the uh, kind of ritualistic expression, or, or really even the reality of worship, were sufficient enough to affect that intimacy. Now it actually happens. So we aren't trying to get back to the garden. That's not the goal now because we have something greater. I mean, so you go again, go back to the Old Testament. We're both not, I'm not an Old Testament scholar either. I'm by training a sacramental theologian. So my scripture comes through ritual. 
Regardless, the beauty of the incarnation reveals both its necessity and this dynamic of sin that requires God to be able to continue to advance and transform his people. Another one of those strings that we could put on the board between the incarnation would go directly to the Paschal sacrifice. That you cannot have Good Friday without Christmas. Correct. I mention that because as we look at a very reduced version of the Old Testament here, um, even more so than what we get in the seven readings at the Easter Vigil, all of salvation history from the Old Testament to the Incarnation is a constant story of God saying, here's the plan, trust me, and man saying, you know what, I think I have a better plan, falling out of favor, falling into exile or captivity, hearing the voice of usually a prophet saying, repent and come back and saying, you know what, we messed up, let's repent, let's go back, times are good, and lather, rinse, repeat, as the shampoo bottle says. We just get stuck in the cycle of exile and return, exile and return, and eventually it becomes, you know, clear to some, certainly clear to God who has known from the beginning of time what would happen, that if this is on man to repair the relationship, it's not going to be possible. There is nothing that earthly man can do to restore what is lost through sin. And yet God is both a loving and merciful God and also a just God. And that's going to factor in, I imagine, as well as we talk about the incarnation. Because uh, some would say, well, why did he have to come? Why did there need to be an incarnation? Couldn't God have just chosen? You know what? You messed up. I forgive you. It's it's good. We're good. I'm sending you word through the prophets. All is well. Go on with your merry lives. But he didn't choose to do that. So the medievalists speak about the fittingness of various things. The answer to that question, could God have accomplished this in another way? Is certainly he could have. He's God. But when you look at all of the all of that comes out of the mystery of the incarnation. And again, this is the beauty of the of the Christmas season. If I can just kind of um, digress for a minute, you were talking about the, the the Paschal mysteries, fullness present in the incarnation. When you look at the octave of Christmas, three of those days, if not four, are martyrs' days. The day immediately after Christmas is the feast of Saint Stephen, the proto martyr, the first martyr. He's the one who testifies to the fullness of Christ, and he gets put to death for it, stoned for preaching the truth. Some would see that as slightly macabre or, you know, minimizing the the beauty of the infant child, but this is precisely the reason why he came. And the church, in her wisdom, puts those side by side to say, let's not lose sight of what this whole thing is going to be about. So the whole liturgical year is a constant meditation on the mystery of Christ, and never at any given moment are we able to move away from, if you will, any aspect of that mystery, precisely because how intertwined it actually is. So when we're in the Easter season, we're not per se thinking of Christmas, except we are thinking of the, the you know, of the the image of the Pieta of Mary holding her uh, her son, his lifeless body, in her arms. But then that takes us back to that same Jesus in her arms when she encounters Simeon. So all that is to say that the, the church is very wise in helping us actually come to an understanding of how all of this beautifully bespeaks the mystery of the incarnation. But now I have to ask you, ask me the question again that we were talking about before I digressed. We were talking about the, the relationship between the two and why God would choose 
fittingness. Why, 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 the fittingness of the incarnation versus just saying, you know what, I'm God. And with, uh, you know, it's a poor metaphor, the snap of fingers. Sure. He, he couldn't just say it's, it's all repaired now. All, all's good. Come on home. Or, or just continue to do, if we go back to prehistory, what we did with Noah. I'll just start again. You know, I'll break the model and and I'll I'll craft it and 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 tweak it until I get to the perfect one. I think there are a couple of answers to that question. And again, it, it is a it's a beautiful question to contemplate because of the outgrowth of what the answer actually is. So the sin of Adam and Eve, as egregious as that sin of disobedience is, because God is the author of creation. They weren't able to obliterate, if you will, what St. John Paul II speaks about as that that spark of God that still remains in us after the sin for which they are guilty. So in his theology of the body, he has a beautiful—I was literally just thinking about this. He, he, St. John Paul II, has a rather long footnote discurses on sacraments and the primordial nature of sacraments— and the fact that when God gives us the sacraments through his son, and the son gives gives efficacy to the sacraments, they aren't impositions on us, things that are forced on us. Rather, it is grace, in a sense, speaking to grace. It is God speaking to that, that, that spark of God that still remains in each of us. So the fall of Adam and Eve, as serious it was, did not do, uh, could not obliterate, if you will, the power of God's creation. So he didn't need to start again, in a sense. And even with the story of Noah, he didn't start again. There was an act of purification, but there was also an act of redemption. Noah's family, Noah's descendants, all of the animals, all saved and spared from the deluge when it actually came. So it does a beautiful job. The incarnation of Christ does a beautiful job of reaffirming the dignity of God's creation. So the church, again, so here's another one of those lines and threads. The whole teaching of the church and the moral life and the beauty of the human person, the beauty of life uh, at the moment of conception, the dignity of us in sickness and in aging, the beauty of matrimony between one man and one woman, all of that can be beautifully traced again to the mystery of the incarnation and the incarnation as affirmation of the beauty of God's creation. He looked upon the world and saw that it was good because he had brought it about. The other aspect that is significant to the incarnation, um, well, maybe a third one, would be obviously what happens between Our Lady, the Holy Spirit, and Our Lord choosing to make his dwelling in her womb. That's actually what I was going to ask about next because we think of, I, I think of my home parish, Our Lady of Sorrows in, in South St. Louis, and on either side of the sanctuary, you have to look up to the archway above the sanctuary. On one side, you have the expulsion from paradise, and you have the angel expelling Adam and Eve. And then on the other side of the arch, you have the Annunciation and the angel Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel uh, saying to Mary, everything we pray in the Angelus essentially depicted in one painting. And we have that new creation without the complete reset that we have with Noah, the flooding of the world, the destruction of the world. And I love going to... Fulton Sheen, and, and as we record in the bookshelf behind me here, I've got this wonderful book, Mary, the World's First Love, and mm-hmm. the analogy that he makes as a musician that, you know, so often what the composer hears in his head or her head and then transcribes on paper and then is ultimately played by the symphony, 
there's going to be a disconnect between what was heard in the head and what is performed by the symphony. Same thing with an artist having a vision, but then the brushes applied to canvas or, or the clay formed in the hands. But with Mary, we have the perfect version of what God intended you and I to be because of how he chose to save her, preserving her from that stain of original sin. And that's one of the beauties that I, I hope we get to touch on in this hour is that part of the incarnation, just in preparing for the incarnation, shows us what we were supposed to be and how we can be created anew through the sacramental life of the church, and then ultimately dying in a state of grace, the resurrection at the end of the world. That image that you talk about from the Church of Our Lady of Sorrows is also familiar to me as well, blessed as I was to spend some time there uh, in residence as a priest. And that is a really beautiful juxtaposition, the expulsion from the garden, and then what Tertullian, I think in Irenaeus referred, I think St. Irenaeus especially, as the recapitulation of mankind. Eve says no to God in her disobedience. Mary says yes to God in her obedience. And God, ever the master craftsman in revitalizing, recreating his world, does it in the way he did it the first time. Um, There are first parents who were disobedient. Now there are first parents, our Lord and our Lady, who are in their obedience, have now made this perfect for us. Again, that's why... The garden is not where we're trying to go. Heaven is where we're trying to go. Because the garden, as good as it was, it was good. In and of itself, Adam and Eve were incapable of understanding the fullness of that which had been given to them. And by virtue of their lack of understanding, they have then radically impacted everyone else who's come after them. With Our Lady and Our Lord... Their perfect understanding of what God is now doing, first the Son who comes in obedience, Our Lady who responds in obedience, is they understand and fully realize exactly what has been given to them and have have responded in such a way that no matter what we do going forward, we're never going to lose that which God now has gained for us. And so that's the second thing I was going to comment on is that Our Lady reveals to us that the new response, if you will, to what God accomplishes in the gift of his son is not an abrogation that of everything that came before, but now the realization that if we're authentically going to live what God wants us to do, it cannot be just the outside of cup and dish that we hear from the prophet Joel on Ash Wednesday. Rend your hearts and not your garments, scripture says. So God has always been asking us, for a perfect conformity between the acts of worship, sacrifice, uh, reparation we've done, and the transformation of our hearts and souls. But we were incapable of cooperating. Now, in the mystery of the Incarnation, and its connectedness to Our Lady and her response by allowing God in her, when the Lord then says later on in his public ministry, I've come not to abrogate, I've come not to change, but to fulfill— What does fulfillment of the law look like if the law itself has not changed? Fulfillment of the law, then, is not in its content because that has already remained the same. Fulfillment of it is that content is internalized. Our Lady takes truth himself inside of herself, which is what we are required to do as well. That then closes the gap between 
um, th- all of the things that we want to do to make reparation, all the things we know we need to do to live rightly with the Lord and our ability to actually do that. So the image I always use, if anybody has been to England and been to the tube, have you been to England at a minute? I chance have not. So when you, or you're in the tube, the underground, the subway, they, uh, there's a gap between the platform and you step into the, the, the train itself. And so in beautiful English fashion, they, there's a, a, a voice over the PA system that says, mind the gap. Mind the gap. And it's big enough that if you step in it, you can fall through or certainly hurt yourself. And I think about that in terms of the spiritual life. That's what we're minding the gap. But God is the one who's already filled it in, first of all. And our ability to close the gap between who I am as a sinner and who I am called to be now by virtue of the rebirth of Christ and the mystery of the incarnation, it's that very act of what Christ accomplishes that likewise allows the gap to be closed. In my youth unintentionally, especially as a child, I may have been a Calvinist thinking that Mary was predestined to say yes, that her fiat was of course going to happen because God created her to say yes. And that takes away Mary's free will. And and that's an important thing to remember that just as Adam and Eve and you and I have the opportunity and the free will to say, you know what, God, I reject your plan. I am going to substitute my plan. Mary could have said no when the angel Gabriel appeared, and the carols would all be very different had she done that. (laughs) Yes. But that comes back to another thing that the Archangel Gabriel says, hail full of grace, that because God preserved her from that stain, and correct me if I'm wrong, because she was preserved from that stain of original sin, because she did not commit a sin, uh, not because she was pre-programmed never to be able to sin, but just she was filled with grace and chose God over sin at every opportunity she may have been presented with. She was in a much better position to say, fiat, let it be done unto me, than you or I would be, because we have been tainted by the nature of sin, and we would not have as much grace as she had in that moment. That is exactly true. And it's hard sometimes to, again, to wrap our minds around that when we think about Mary, you know, it seems unfair. She received this fullness of grace that allows her to perfectly, well, why why can't I have that? Well, actually, you can And therein lies the problem. Mary doesn't have something that we don't have access to. Mary, not just, she received in proportion, because we know God gives in proportion to what he asks. So since no one is ever going to be asked to be the mother of God, that only can happen once to one person, it is, again, fitting and proper that that one person, Our Lady, would receive the fullness because of what it is that she was being asked to do, to be the mother of God. God is never going to ask me anything remotely approaching the awesomeness of what she was asked to do. So for all the graces I might need to live my life unto God, um, and it would, would it be nice to have the fullness of them? Yes, but God does give me in proportion to what I need to do. So it's not as, again, it's not as if God is stingy with it, but God gives me what I need. The problem is the very grace is given. I don't cooperate with them. So as you were saying, our lady was free to say no. It seems an improbability and an impossibility, but it's not. Either it is an improbability because now we know what happened. As an impossibility, no, she could have said no. The giving of grace, even the fullness of grace, doesn't abrogate free will. Uh, God, God, in a sense, doesn't give himself a guarantee that his uh, creation is going to do. And again, because God knows everything in a, in a moment, it's hard for us to to somehow, again, wrap our minds around this moment of all of these are the same reality for God. 
But Our Lady is able to, having received it, then lived out of it in every single moment so that when the time comes, she's actually able to do whatever it is that the Lord asks her to do. But notice that, too, that what she'd been doing was her whole life living out of that grace. It wasn't like grace given for that moment. It was grace given for all of the other moments. So that that's why, you know, the angel Gabriel tells her, don't be afraid. And Mary's like, really, I'm not kind of afraid. I'm just trying to understand this because I've already made commitments to God based on the graces that God has already given me. So tell me now. So the question, I do not know man, is not a biological question. It's, uh, as the church teaches us, she's made a commitment to perpetual virginity which she maintained and was able to keep because of how God chooses to have this unfold. So her whole life has been this this um, constant utilization of and response in generosity to the graciousness of grace given to her. And I use those words intentionally, generosity, the graciousness of grace, because it is this this unmerited gift that is full and complete of God's life itself, um, that he bestows upon us, Our Lady responds perfectly to that and then becomes in herself, again, looking at the, the name, a roadmap, as to how we do this. How do, I, how do I respond to God? How should I respond? So we're talking about how do I respond to the incarnation? Here you go. Look at our Blessed Mother. What is her response? Uh, I am the maidservant of the Lord. I'm the slave of the Lord. Do it unto me according to the word. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Do whatever it is that he commands you to do. Um, she held all of these things in her heart. Uh, standing at the foot of the cross was Mary and the beloved disciple. In the upper room was Mary along with the other disciples. Um, John took her into his heart. Okay, there it is. I don't know what more you need in order to better understand this. I think of everything we're talking about in the context. I'm going to bring one of the sacraments into this sacrament of reconciliation and this whole idea of the effect of sin on our lives. And we're not talking about necessarily the, the presence of sin on our soul. That's uh, a crude way to put it. But I mean, even if I commit a mortal sin, if I'm repentant and I come seek you or any priests out in the confessional and I, I am truly repentant whether that's perfect contrition out of love for God or even imperfect contrition out of fear of hell, and I make a good confession and I receive absolution, I'm forgiven of the sin. I am now free of you know all of my sins up until that point. And yet the reality is there's still that temporal effect on my soul. There's still that consequence, or as we read in Scripture, the wages of sin is death. Mary didn't have to deal with that. No, she didn't. Because not. she was full of grace. That's correct. And, <clears throat> you know, and she cooperated with the fullness of grace that she was given. Back to your point earlier, that her free will is not diminished because of this. So even if I walk out of the confessional, you know, and, and the Archangel Gabriel were to appear to me and say, God is asking this of you, Adam, whatever it may be. I'm going to be wrestling with, well, you know, but I, you know, I really want to do God's will, but I kind of also know what that was like. I, I think of every time I'm trying to eat healthy, I know the taste of a cheeseburger. And as much as I, you know, I may have cleansed it out of my system and I may be doing really great. And I've been on this diet for months now, but something about the smell of that cheeseburger in the air makes me say, okay. And, you know, I think of those who struggle with the sin of lust, the eyes lead to places and as much as you're trying to be good, you you grapple with those same realities, and that's going to bring us back to one of those strings. No matter 
what happens if, if there say the incarnation and the Paschal mystery were a one-time event, you know, the snap of the fingers, it's taken care of now, don't worry about it. It doesn't solve the problem of, well, what happens after this? Because unless you take away our free will, we're probably going to sin again. And so on that note, I actually want to fast forward. I, I, I We're talking about the incarnation on this episode of the podcast, <laughs> and it seems like we're talking about everything but the incarnation so that we can. I want to fast forward to that Paschal sacrifice and, and getting to that question of, why the incarnation? Why not just a snap of the fingers to eliminate everything? Um, there's nothing that we could offer. You know, even when I go into the confessional, as we just said, I'm going to be affected by my sins. Even though God's going to freely forgive them, I'm going to be affected by them. There's nothing that we can offer that would be perfect. It might be good. Some of us might even be able to offer something that's great, but it will never be perfect. And God was offering us perfection in creation, and we said no. And so how do you make up for God offering the perfect if you don't have something perfect to offer in return? Correct. You know, it, it is, a, and again, you say we've been talking about everything else but the incarnation, but in truth, we actually have been talking about the incarnation because this is, again, uh, all of these, if you will, strings pulled away from that one thumbtack in the middle is this is this is all of the fruit. So, you know, you beautifully articulate what happens to us after we come out of the confessional? Because that's where the real story begins. Up until that point, it is all God's work in a sense has gotten you. You've cooperated. So I always remind people when they go to confession, the very act of going to confession is a cooperation with God's grace. From the moment you decide I need to go, you do an examination of conscience, you go and you confess your sins, matter and kind and number, uh, and do so integrally, you're contrite, whether it is imperfect or perfect. All of that is grace and the Spirit, and you're cooperating with the Spirit. Then you walk out, and now you go, now, now what do I do? Well, you need to remember, first, you're not, you're not alone, that grace is still there. Uh, as you beautifully also point out, and I never really thought of it that way, Our Lady never suffered from any type of memory other than the memory of the joy of doing God's will. That's what we. That's what we forget. We we have that moment of, I feel great, Ron. Confession is wonderful. I know I'm in the right spot. I've made all my resolutions. When I get and then, depending on how good we are, maybe we'll get off the parking lot. But by the time we get home, we probably need to turn around and go back again. Not necessarily guilty of mortal sin, but certainly venial sins. And if you're an impatient driver like I am, very easy to fall back into those sins. And I'm mad at myself as soon as I get off the parking lot. Um, but what comes after that is the continuation of the graces actually given, doing again, but in a sense, if we look at again in the life of Our Lady, putting it together moment after moment after moment after moment, uh, and trying to, in our minds, eradicate all the things that we have done wrong and call to mind, remember, God asks us to do that, remember all of the things that God actually has accomplished in us. I, no, I was thinking as you were saying that about, again, talking about the Paschal Mystery and something that we said right at the onset of this, that without the Paschal Mystery, really, what's the purpose of the Incarnation? And I, I want to come to to that for a moment just because I, I am thinking about that. And my my question was really related to this. I mean, without the Paschal Mystery, certainly the Incarnation is unnecessary because if if our Lord became incarnate solely to teach. You know, some people say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. 
you know, that's a, a cultural acceptance. Maybe they'll deny the divinity of our Lord, but they'll say he was, he was a wise man that had some good teachings. Well, God gave Moses the law and, and God gave his chosen people, the prophets to teach and say, this is what God wants you to do. Uh, and, and as we look at the commandments broken down into the two categories, the first three love God, the second set of commandments, the, the seven aimed at loving God, but how? By loving your neighbor. And it, our Lord says that in the gospel, love the Lord your God with all your heart is the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Surely he didn't need to come here to tell us that. He could have sent a messenger as he did so many times throughout salvation history, whether it was Moses or the prophets. Uh, why would he need to come if that if it weren't for the Paschal Mystery? And that comes back to that perfect sacrifice. So in asking that question, why is the incarnation necessary? I want to ask this question. Why is the sacrifice necessary? Why was Good Friday necessary as the expiation for my sins? And everyone listening. I'm going to use the, the royal my here. So I, I want to uh, eventually circle back to that question about the incarnation and the Paschal Mystery, because I probably would take slight exception to that. But let me answer the question about the sacrifice. So one of the things that is perennial, or not perennial, but constant in the church, in the teaching on sacrifice, this would be true of pagan sacrifices and certainly the perfect sacrifice, which is our Lord's is that the greater the sacrifice made, the greater the commitment from the one who is receiving the sacrifice. That's what we forget. We who make sacrifice always assume that our greater sacrifice gets us more, you know. Um, the sacrifice of Abel as opposed to Cain's. Abel's came from his heart. Um, so it isn't really just about the, about the, the thing being sacrificed per se. But we do know that, so when you look at like pagan sacrifice, why they sacrificed people, okay? Horrific that they did it, but you can understand the instinct. What is the greatest thing I can give to appease the gods? Another another person. I can't give myself because I'm either a coward or scaredy cat or I don't want to die. Those are all good things, I guess, in one sense. But maybe I'll sacrifice somebody else. Uh, you know, I'll pull their hearts out, if you will, and, and give those up to the gods. Okay. So what is it about the Paschal Mystery? Well, it's God accepting a sacrifice from God made on behalf of the people who are able to attach themselves to the sacrifice of Christ, which now does what? It commits the Father to this irrevocable relationship with his people. Now, he'd already had that with them, with us. So it's not as if he is somehow really now all in in a way he wasn't before. He's always been all in, if you will, in relationship with us. But now we have concretized in flesh, in the material world, something that we can understand and appreciate. And so how much does God love me? The question I might ask. He loves me enough to allow his son to take my place in remission of my sins. I might have known that conceptually, and the ancient Israelites might have known that through the scapegoat or the other ways that they offered sacrifice to God to make expiation of sin, but the fullness of that sacrifice, to make holy, to sanctify, to set aside, the fullness of that only becomes revealed in Christ. So an aspect of the incarnation 
is leading to the fullness of the Paschal Mystery, the Passion, Death, Glorious Resurrection, and Ascension of our Lord. But then this is going back to the point earlier. All of this was done in order to reveal the Father to us and the love that the Father has. So if Adam and Eve had not sinned, and there had been no need for the expiation of sin, there still would have been the necessity of sacrifice, not for appeasement, uh, not in expiation, but sacrifice done in thanksgiving, sacrifice done as an act of glorification. And what would have happened, what Christ would have accomplished in coming, would have been revealing to us how these sacrifices we offer can be made perfect to the one who is receiving them, who himself is perfect. Does that make sense? It does. It's it's where I get into trouble for just not contemplating what would have happened had there not been the fall of man and saying, well, without you know, without the paschal sacrifice, surely the incarnation would be unnecessary. And and again, we've 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 discussed that, the, the necessity of it, and we've we've commented on that. Something you just said though brings up a very good point, and that's that it's not just about God telling us. It's about God showing us. I love you this much. And as cliche as it is, we hear it somewhere every Lent. How much does God love me? And we think of, you know, as we were kids, I love you this much and the arms outstretched. And then they show the image of the crucifix. And how much does God love you this much? And it, it's always been a great comfort to me. And I think that that's wired into how God made us, that we would take comfort in this, that he's not just saying I love you. He's showing us the the ultimate end of how much he loves us mm-hmm. that you know once i give my life i can't give any more and he says okay then i will give my life on a cross it's a very very beautiful thing and then that invitation that comes with it we've touched on this in talking about confession to die ourselves to give ourselves she said you know for the pagan sacrifice i might be a coward i'm not going to offer myself i'll offer someone else He's not necessarily asking us to rip our own hearts out. He's asking us to say, okay, Adam, you've got this choice before you. You could click on that link that you know you shouldn't be clicking on on the internet, or you could choose me and you could choose love and avoid that website. Adam, you could send that text gossiping about, did you hear what so-and-so did? And oh my goodness, isn't that embarrassing? Or you could not send that text. You could die to that desire. These are just two examples of sin, but every temptation, we could die to that desire. Take it another step further. We could say, you know, I am going to try to live a life of holiness, and I'm going to go to Mass, not just on Sundays, but as often as I can. And I'm going to pray with my family, whether we're in the comfort of our home or if we're at the dinner table at a restaurant. Uh, Or I'm going to say, no, I'm not participating in that because that's wrong and be ridiculed by our friends. And that public ridicule is another opportunity to die to self. And throughout the history of the church, and as we will celebrate in the days immediately following Christmas, that other great example of those who literally are willing to die or were willing to die for the sake of the gospel. Not that they killed themselves, but they weren't shy about being ready for death if death is what it meant to stay true to our Lord. In all of those situations, we have that comfort of knowing, well, would God really want me to do this? He doesn't know what it's like. Well, he did it for you. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the knucklehead moment. Adam, stop being a knucklehead. God God died for you, so die for him. You are correct. I, I don't know if I want to add anything to that per se, but the, the beauty of this whole conversation is that we're talking about something that we introduced into God's creation, and that's death. That was not, God did not want us to die. 
That was not God's intention for us, that we have to suffer in that way. And all the things that we know come from original sin. So, you know, calamities in the environment, things of that, whatever they might be. All of those are manifestations. And of course, the sins that we impact on each other. And so what does God do? God not only finds a perfect way in becoming flesh to begin this process of redemption and expiation of sin, but does it through death itself. And then says, okay, you know what? You guys introduced something that was irreparably damaging to the relationship I established with you. I'm going to use that same thing as the means of repairing the very relationship you destroyed through that same thing. And so, yeah, if I'm a a non-believer, making sacrifice is the last thing I want to do. If I believe in the mystery of the Lord, dying to myself doesn't mean anything at all. So we go back to Our Lady, or we go back to the martyrs, if we need examples other than Our Lady. Both of those, Our Lady the martyrs, the saints in general, particularly Our Lady and the martyrs, are clear that one is able to accept the fullness of what God demands from us because every moment of my life has been a denial of myself and an embracing of God. So Our Lady says, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Okay. It isn't just a moment where she's singing. Her whole being is oriented toward giving praise to God and making the unnecessary adjustments, sacrifices, deaths, if you will, although she was not subject, obviously, to, to, to physical death, but that spiritual uh, act of losing her own will because she had so perfectly conformed it to the will of our Heavenly Father. So it has to be for us as well. And so what does the Lord say? If you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me. It really is that simple. I, I love that. I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much, but I do have to mention how much I love that it doesn't mean it's necessarily easy for the Blessed Mother or that she didn't suffer. And, and going back to our parish experience, mutual parish experience, Our Lady of Sorrows, I was just looking at the side altar and the seven sorrows of Mary. Mary certainly suffered. Mm-hmm. And, and her suffering was even greater because of her capacity to love, because of her being full of grace. And, uh, you know, that Pollyanna attitude of, oh, everything, it's all God's plan. It's all going to be okay. Well, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Right. And uh, that, that's always important for us to remember. You mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation, um, the incarnation being tied to the sacraments. And I do want to spend some time on that for our listeners here. But I, I also want to interject just for a moment that one of the reasons I feel this is so important to talk about that we're giving a whole episode of the podcast to this is not to diminish you know, the fun of getting together with friends this time of year and of eating the cookies and the snacks. I certainly enjoy the, the uh, smorgasbord at various gatherings and parties. And I love the carols we sing, but I, I always come back to one in particular, and that's Joy to the World, which very closely, again, draws this link between the Incarnation and the Paschal Sacrifice. And talking about the necessity of the Incarnation and the, the direct link between the Incarnation and the Sacrifice helps keep us oriented in the season that every year becomes even more overwhelmingly secular uh, I think it was September before I saw my first Christmas display in a retail store. Right. And before it was, you know, the day after Thanksgiving, sure, fine. Now it, 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 I, it's probably going to be Easter next year, and we'll see the decorations up for Christmas in the retail stores. And that's not unreasonable, actually, to assume. You're right, because of the secularization of this reality. But go ahead. I'm so, sorry. So we're talking about this in the context of keeping our eyes fixed on what is the most important 
you know, not to say don't enjoy those other things, but that's not the main thing, you know. And you're going to better able to enjoy those things if you actually are enjoying the right thing. That's what people oftentimes forget about the whole, really the whole work of Christianity. It's it's not a it's not a um and in the sacrifice we're making, it's not um just this life of you know uh, abnegation and neglect to the point where you're just you know uh, a nothing living in sludge. The more I lose myself, the Lord, and the Lord himself said this to us, the more I lose, the more I actually gain. So if you really want the Christmas season to be a season of joy to the world, then keep your sights on what is actually going on. So when you're with family and friends and you're celebrating and it seems to be only a secular affair, you're with people who haven't been to church in years or who will go to church this year, and that's the only time they'll go until Easter— and every family, I'm sure everyone who's listening has somebody or somebodies who falls into that category. You, however, not only in evangelizing them if the opportunity presents itself, but just as importantly, can enjoy them because you have a better understanding of not only what is happening, but who's happening and what he's doing to not only you, but to them as well. And you can rejoice in that. You can celebrate that fully and completely. So sacrifice is not antithetical to joy. As a matter of fact, authentic joy has to come from sacrifice, letting go, dying with God that you might live with God. We've talked about many times in this episode, if it was a one and done event, you know, and and we think about that, that you could say perhaps uh, Noah and the flood, it's supposedly a one and done event. They messed up. They chose sin. We've got Noah. We've got his crew. We've got the animals. We're going to flood the earth, get rid of everybody else, start over again. What happens? Again, that same salvation history story of exile, return, exile, return uh, at a very base reduction here. It amazes me how God now takes that into account. And through the ministry of the church, which was instituted by the incarnate second person of the Holy Trinity, we have a remedy for the Adam's going to screw up over and over and over again. I, I always joke, our listeners are probably sick of this. I think back to when one of my kids was a toddler at Mass. It was either during Lent or during the Exultant, and they heard, uh, oh, happy fault of Adam. And they said, Dad, what did you do? <laughs> you <know? laughs> I said, we, what did we do? Right. Uh, but again, that, that's another thing that our Lord comes and he actually gives Peter the keys. He he picks the 12. He, he founds the church. He gives them the power to forgive sins. It's not just the sacrament of the Eucharist, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. He gives the power and the authority to go and do all of these beautiful things the church does through the sacraments while he is present among us here on earth incarnate. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, I I think of a talk I heard from Scott Hahn recently at a Eucharistic Congress where he talked about how if Holy Thursday is just a meal, then Good Friday is just a Roman execution. Mm -hmm. But if it's the second person of the Trinity offering himself as the sacrifice, we now have the ability to receive that sacrifice. I'm going to defer to you on how to, to phrase this, represent that sacrifice in a bloodless manner every day. On the altars, and when I say we, I mean you and your brother priests. I have no ability to do that. I can just go and, and pray. Well, the language you use is that beautiful language from the from the Council of Trent in describing what is happening in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. That it is a re-hyphened 
presentation, because we, we of course, the, the language the, the council fathers used to Trent was specific in order to safeguard what one of the critiques of the mass was, and that we were, we as priests, Catholics, from the those who revolted and rejected the church were articulating that we were trying to improve on the sacrifice of the Lord. We're not improving it. But as you say, you know, when our Lord comes in the flesh, suffers and dies and rises to new life, uh, that is a historical event that happened once, but its efficacy continues to perdure. And the Lord has found these beautiful ways to allow that to happen through the church herself writ large and all that she does in the work of evangelization and the salvation of souls, and specifically the seven sacraments entrusted to her, visible signs of invisible grace, St. Augustine says. The uh, medievalists add invisible sign and cause of grace, to be clear about that. So when all of this is beginning to unfold, it, it is both a historical fact, but then also something that continues to give strength to us. And why? Why would God go through all of the trouble he goes through from the incarnation to its fulfillment in the Paschal Mystery to suffer and die for us in order for it to be an event that is locked away by history? Well, first of all, he's God, so he's not bound by the very history for which he is the author, which means then the things that he accomplishes are not limited, are not ossified in time. So when we go to the holy sacrifice, we're not we're not improving on Calvary. We're not reenacting it like, you know, the Battle of Gettysburg every year by the sons and daughters of the Confederacy or the Union or whatever. What we are doing is entering into a ritual reality that the Lord himself imbued, endowed with grace and himself such that it is still effective today. The cross is as effective now as it was when he first mounted it, except now because he loves us. So, again, he loves us so much. We don't have to die in the way that he died in order to be able to benefit from dying to oneself and the new life that it comes. Yes, we will all eventually die. But hopefully, if we have lived well, when that day comes, whenever that day is, we have lived in such a way that we will enjoy the fruits of that life of sacrifice by seeing with our Lord in heaven. So it is a representation of the bloody sacrifice on Calvary in an unbloody manner. Same priest, same victim, same sacrifice, just a different manner. I think of the gifts I've given my wife over the years, especially those I'm sorry moments in the context of this conversation. You know, Adam, last time uh, you messed up, you gave me this, and it was a very heartwarming gesture. Uh, what are you going to give me this time? My wife would never actually say that, but, you know, I, I imagine if she did, and I would have to say, well, I have to go find something now. What am I going to give her this time as a way of saying I'm sorry, whether that's some act of service in the house or some, you know, some would send flowers or, or whatnot. And yet every day you have the ability to act in the person of Christ and say, today I'm going to give you, Father, the exact same thing that we gave you yesterday that I can only we can only give to you because your son gave it to you. And that's an amazing thing. The well never runs dry. I mean, just the, the beauty of God's plan is amazing because I, I would be stuck after about five days. What could I give God? I, I'm running out of options here if he didn't give me something to give himself. And that's exactly correct. You don't have anything to give God. If we're taking 
Uh, I think of the little drummer boy, you know. Mm -hmm. He has nothing of himself to give. Uh, we have nothing to give God, ultimately. Except God accepts from us ourself. But the self he now wants from us is that self that has been redeemed in the mystery of the sacrifice and lives out that sacrifice in our daily lives. So so that's the mass, but let's draw the line, and, and by let's, I mean, if you could draw the line for our listeners between the sacraments, because really we're talking about more than just the mass. We're talking about the mass, reconciliation, marriage, I think of specifically with our Lord's ministry on earth, uh, ordination to the priesthood. How do we draw that line from the sacraments to the incarnation? Well, I think the easiest way to draw that line for all seven sacraments is that the mystery of the Incarnation imbues them with their efficacy. So the sacrament of the matrimony is described as the primordial sacrament because it's the only one that actually existed uh, in creation. God chooses to make them male-female. A man leaves his mother and father and clings to his wife. Uh, but the other sacraments, which are in one sense by their simplicity of their matter, if you will, in the sacrament, correspond to, as Thomas reminds us, to the aspects of our life. So baptism is initiation, the beginning. Uh, confirmation is the sealing of that which was begun in us. The Most Holy Eucharist, of course, is nourishing and feeding us. The lives of service through marriage or through holy orders orients this life of baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. Now, what is my ministry, my apostolate, marriage, or priesthood? Of course, when I sin, I'm either anointed in body in order to help me repair my sin, but more importantly, to resist the temptations that come in weakness or through the sacrament of reconciliation, making reparation for what I've done wrong. And so all of those realities that Christ himself gives to us come about because God becomes man. Were they, were they present, if you will, in, the, in, in ancient Israel uh, as explicitly as that? No, but you can see traces. So you can actually not see. You can see clear evidence of all seven sacraments in the Old Testament dispensation. Uh, what was the difference? Because they in themselves did not have the ability to do what? Remain the perfect gift to return to again and again and again. So instead of coming up with, you know, I think of baptism, which is initiation, you know, so, you know, the, 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 the pledge fathers get together to think of what are we going to do this year for initiation different than we did last year? Uh, get, we have a dude with this pledge is diff, whatever it might be with each of the sacraments. There's no reason to come up with something new in and of itself. It's perfect as it is. It's ritual accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish in, in a way that clearly indicates this is what God wants to be done. And so all of that ability to communicate that, which it signifies comes from the fact that God becomes man. He becomes a part of the created world that he himself has already brought about. And by the virtue of doing that, not only does he rebirth it, he imbues it with this ability to communicate himself to us. Uh, it's, it's the most wonderful thing in the whole world. And I love John Paul, again, that reflection on the primordial sacraments or the nature of sacrament as a primordial reality. It, it, this isn't something God's forcing on us. It's who we are. I think of, you know, um, Core ad core locator, heart speaking to heart, or you know, is the psalmist says, "My Lord speaks to my Lord." You know, it's the conversation between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and they said, "You know what? Why don't we invite our creation into this conversation?" It looks like they want to come in. Before we were kind of outsiders looking in, periodically being able to dabble in it, but now we're at the very heart of the economy of the Blessed Trinity. I mean, come on, come on. Even with what you said about 
the sacrament of matrimony, being there from the very beginning. And as soon as you said that, I immediately go to that passage. It is not good for the man to be alone. Correct. And, and let us create one of his flesh and the taking of Adam's rib, as, as we hear in Genesis. In the Gospels, we now find the seven sacraments, whether very explicitly stated, I think of baptism. You know, you could say, well, the baptism in the Jordan. Well, no, I, I'm going to go to Matthew 25 in the Great Commission where he says, go and baptize. But because he was baptized in the Jordan, we know very clearly, well, what is baptism? God gave us a new word here. I don't know what that means. What is baptism? No, we know he was baptized. It's part of the gospel. But we also hear that he raised marriage to the dignity of a sacrament, which is I, I don't know. I, I I feel a little conflicted now based on what you just said of marriage being there from the beginning. But we do say that, that in, in the Gospels and, and in his earthly ministry, Jesus raised marriage to the dignity of a sacrament. Of course he did. And, and the same would be true of baptism. Baptism was not a the, – the idea of washing someone to purify them as an act of initiation was not new to the Lord. What becomes new is that this outward act, which is signifying that one has been transformed, one has been purified – actually affects transformation and purification. So, you know, some of the Lord's apostles would have been part of the, the zealot community. That there, We know that there were uh, ritual baths for them as part of their purification. So, in a sense, a, a, a great many of the, the binding and loosening it's giving in confession, that was a rabbinical power. That's how they kept lepers in and out. You go to the rabbi who says you're in the community or not, but now this power has the ability to not only forgive sins here on earth, but also in heaven as well. So in each of these realities, the Lord uses, in a sense, these things that were already ordinary and available, already had, in some senses, the meaning that we still attach to them. But what the incarnation has done and the fullness of the Paschal mystery is to endow them with the grace to affect what they signify. So that's one of the definitions of a sacrament. It is an outward sign and cause of the grace that it signifies. When Augustine says there are visible signs of invisible grace, he knew exactly what he was saying. There was no confusion for him. They, they affect us. They do something to us. This is one of the primary separations between us and our brethren who are separate from us, is when we talk about baptism purifying us, that's exactly what it does. We believe that. Okay. Where does that come from? It comes from our Lord. And that's the important part that I was going to say. I mean, you look at the prophets, you look at the Mosaic law, you look at everything after, you know, how do we know that Augustine is right and Luther was wrong or that Aquinas was right in what he was saying and that Calvin or Wesley were wrong? Because we can trace all of these things about the sacraments to Jesus said it while here on earth. We don't have to question the messenger because the messenger is the author of the message himself. It's not that game of telephone that we all played as kids that by the time it gets to the end of the line, it's been distorted, which Correct. still happens because of us, not because of him. But Correct. We can trace it back. You know, it is. When you, when you look, this again was, would have been one of the critiques is that uh, in the Reformation that there was no, there was little to scant scriptural evidence of the sacraments. That's simply not true. I can give you chapter and verse from the New Testament for all seven sacraments as to where they actually are. Uh, it was a fascinating thing when I started teaching sacramental theology to go through that and to look and go, okay, I kind of knew this, but now I know this for a fact, if you will. So yes, the difference between us and those who rejected the truths of the faith are the simple fact that all of this goes back to the word himself, who is what? 
the word made flesh. And therein lies again, back to why the incarnation, because God had already spoken many times. He conversed with us, but now God's conversation is not a multiplicity of words, only one word. And that word has become flesh, has made his dwelling in us, has revealed in us the beauty and the power and the dignity of the flesh itself. Again, no more need be asked or wanted. I am the king of crude analogies sometimes on the radio here, and I think of a recent joyful event, I ran into a good friend of ours who entered religious life, and we haven't seen her in years. And we've seen many of her sisters, her religious sisters, and we said, if you see sister, please tell her how much we miss her and how much we love her. But them telling her that, it conveys the truth that we love her and that we miss her. But it was nothing compared to the opportunity I had to see her in person and say, I think of you so often, Beth and I love you, and we miss you terribly. And, you know, that's, again, that beauty of the incarnation Mm -hmm. that that we're talking about. It's not, okay, through all of these different practices of the Old Testament, as you just said, God's saying, do these things. He's saying, do these things. It's true, but it takes it to a whole new level and a new efficacy when he actually institutes the sacraments. It's no longer just a ritual. It's everything you just said that it was. And and that's the beauty. And so I want to wrap up with this because we've been going for quite a while here. I have no idea how you and your brother priests even begin to think about how am I going to use the season of Advent? And even if you take that little bonus time of of eschatology and that focus on the end of the world in November and get this distilled into a message that we could give, I'll even give you the octave of Christmas, eight days to say, preach on this every day. How you give that takeaway message for the person that that might be their only interaction They might come to Mass on Christmas, and that's it. And we're hoping that God would work in their hearts. But if you had to, what would you say is the overarching message of everything we've talked about that you would want people to take away as they celebrate the Incarnation this Christmas? Well, that's a very good— No pressure, by the way. (laughs) No, it's it's a powerful question to ask because— Every, every Advent for me is, is, obviously it's a new church year, so it's an opportunity to begin anew with the Lord. And so the question I kind of ask myself is, what am, what am I going to do differently this year to truly take advantage of the graces of the Advent season leading me into the Christmas season? Uh, and of course, by tradition, the Christmas season goes actually through really much the whole month of January to the Feast of the Presentation. So there's a good long five weeks, if you will, to contemplate the mystery of Christmas I would focus, I think, in some ways, if you were if you were to force me to distill this to its simplest parts, which is not an easy thing for me to do, would be to contemplate the fullness of what it means for God to actually love us. We were talking about new words, new language. And of course, we know we had to come up with a new way of describing the love of Christ for us because it was unheard of, this completely and totally sacrificial love. So when we say now that we love each other, when we understand what it means for God to love us, it it is all caught up in the mystery of the cross, which sits side by side to the mystery of the incarnation. Again, as a sacramental liturgical theologian, um, I'm always looking to the liturgy, to our rituals, to reveal what it is that we teach. And so that juxtaposition is always very stark for me, but very profound between Christmas Day and the Feast of St. Stephen. But I'm not, I'm not in any way liturgically asked to let go of one in order to embrace the other. And so what do I know from that is that this child who 
in his simplicity, trust, beauty, humility, is the in the embodiment in the flesh of the love of God. He also reveals that the fullness of that love, having begun in the flesh, is brought to fulfillment on the cross. And so the very act of contemplating the incarnation and spending time with the incarnate Lord in uh, throughout the Christmas season is to go back to that reality of the love of the Father, the love of Christ, the love of the Spirit, the love that I'm required to live in, and then to show to others as well. My final thought would be, to make it even more simple, is this is what adoration is. Because that love is still present with us in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So if you can't remember anything of what I said, you can't remember anything of this conversation, um, all you need to do is go and be in the presence of our Lord. And by doing so, you're going to be in the presence of love himself. Beautiful. There's a lot more that we could have discussed. There, We could go on for hours, but this does conclude our episode of Deeper Here on the Roadmap to Heaven podcast. Monsignor, I want to thank you for your time. Of course, it would not be a broadcast of any sort here if we did not close in prayer. And as you are the priest and I am not, I would love to turn that over to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious and merciful Father, draw near to us now and hear our prayers. We give you thanks for the gift of the mystery of the Incarnation, your Son who you sent to dwell among us and to be one with us in all things but sin. As we turn our minds and our hearts to an ongoing contemplation of this great mystery, help us to truly realize the love that you have for us and the love that Christ has for us made manifest in his spouse, the Church that all that we say and all that we have heard truly give you fitting glory and praise and strengthen all of us to more perfectly do your will in love. We make this prayer and all of our prayers through Christ our Lord. Amen. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Deeper on the Roadmap to Heaven podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please click like, subscribe, share, whatever it may be on your particular podcast player, and send it to a friend this Christmas season and beyond. Really, this topic of the incarnation is something we can talk about all year. Until next time, I'm Adam Wright. Thanks for listening.